Welcome, friends, to the Revolution 250 podcast. I am not Bob Allison. I am filling in for Bob today. I'm Jonathan Lane, coordinator of Revolution 250. Revolution 250 is a program of the Massachusetts Historical Society uh, in partnership with more than 60 organizations across the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and beyond. Uh, picked up a few from New Hampshire and a few from Rhode Island. So we're making friends left, right, and center. We are pleased to have with us today Catherine Algor, who is the president of the Massachusetts Historical Society and is uh, here to talk about MHS and uh, all the wonderful history that it possesses. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, Jonathan. How are you? Oh, we're doing just fine. Thank you very much. And uh, we thank you for all of your attention and support for Revolution 250 and all of its partners. Uh, just for our viewers and uh, people who will be watching this later, can you give a little background about how the revolution helped get the Mass Historical Society started? And I'm so pleased to be here, and I'm so pleased that we are the, the sponsor of this wonderful endeavor, and really, it's, um, as they would say, on brand for us. The American Revolution is actually embedded in our DNA. So we were the first historical society to be founded in North America, for sure, 1791, uh, by the Reverend Jeremy Belknap. And the revolution was very much on his mind when he decided to uh, form the historical society. So 1791, he is part of the revolutionary generation. And like many of the founders, um, the Reverend Belknap was very aware that he was in historical times. In fact, um, right from the beginning, from the 1770s, the founders were very conscious that they were doing something, if I may say, revolutionary, uh, rebelling <laughs> against the British, um, the Declaration of Independence, uh, coming up with the first uh, complete written national constitution in the world, uh, redoing laws, redoing precedents. So they were very aware that they were um, historical actors. Having said that, what was alarming to Jeremy Belknap was how the documents of this time seemed to be disappearing, that people were just very casual, as we are about our own things, right? And documents <laughs> were being lost. And so it was his impulse to start saving the documents, the words of this historical moment. Uh, and for them, of course, it wasn't, it was both history, but it was also what was happening right at that moment. And there could be mm -hmm. nothing more emblematic than that, than one of our treasures, um, which is an account of Paul Revere's ride. Obviously mm -hmm. a very famous ride, um, but it's, it's from a document from the 1790s. And it, it only exists because Jeremy Belknap reached out to Paul Revere himself, who by this time was you know, a, a leading citizen of Boston and asked him to please write down the account so it wouldn't be lost. And so mm -hmm. we have that account uh, written in the 1790s about this pivotal event. And in fact, it was in our reading room that Henry Wadsworth Longfellow sat with that account and it inspired, of course, the, the famous poem. Um, and as you may know that we are also the home of the um, papers of the Adams family, John and Abigail, John Quincy and Louisa, and the whole family up until the almost the 20th century. And our um, project decades along at this point and decades to go is to publish all of this material. We're well underway. And of course, now we're doing things in digital editions. But because of that, we have things like John Adams notes from the Boston massacre and the depositions of the trial, because as, as you know, 
from our exhibition, uh, he defended <laughs> the soldiers in the massacre. And what's amazing about the depositions um, is that they bring the words of um, ordinary people of that time to life as, as eyewitness accounts. So it's not just famous men we have, but uh, in the uh, women are testifying, children, mm -hmm. um, an African-American pastry chef, uh, fascinating stuff. And, and so I could go on and on about that, but let me also just say we have amazing resources for teachers who'd like to teach about the American Revolution, just go on our website and for students if they're interested in the revolution. So we're all about mm -hmm. it, my friend. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting you bring up the the Paul Revere ride uh, be, because that, as most people who are involved in American Revolution history understand, that that ride was, was not a singular event. Uh, there were a number of rides that took place to spread the news and encourage participation in, for instance, the Powder Alarm in 1774, and was really part of a larger system uh, which uh, is now really being looked into, not just through the records of the Mass Historical Society, but by some of the town and community records that are still held by towns and communities across the Commonwealth. And it's one of the goals of Revolution 250 to see those types of records uh, brought forward, digitized, preserved, and added to this great database of scholastic knowledge to help flesh out those uh, those stories and give them a greater depth. Well, it's a and that's a great enterprise because I think I think you're making the point that the reason that we know Paul Revere is because we got the story, right? Right. We got the story from him. Of course, it's immortalized by Longfellow, but you're right, the importance of getting out the stories because who tells our stories is very, very important. So I'm interested in a grant that the MHS recently received uh, to help digitize some of the underrepresented voices in uh, the revolutionary era and the early republic. And I didn't know if you'd like to touch a little bit on some of that. Yeah, we were just, um, we're the very grateful recipients of an anonymous grant. Um, and it, it has as its focus um, digitization all with the idea that our mission is to communicate. So we collect, we collect all the way through today, today um, papers of families and businesses. And we, we, we like to say we tell a national story through a Massachusetts lens. So we still collect. Obviously this stuff needs to be preserved, but it's just stuff unless we can communicate it. And this wonderful grant mm. is allowing us to do that communication in, in all kinds of ways, including digitization, because that's really the future of communicating historical uh, artifacts and materials. So we're very grateful mm -hmm. for it. Uh, and yeah, and the focus is on the underrepresented. And you know, what, what we are doing is looking at every sort of aspect of our shop from collecting, preserving, publication, down to hiring, um, where we invest our money. And we're really hoping to um, embody the highest practices of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And it's funny, Jonathan, the, the forms that it it has taken us. So one of the things we're also looking at are our own documents. So if you go mm -hmm. to a library and you can come in when we're open, when we're finally open, <laughs> anybody can come into our library for free and have a reference librarian, a talented professional reference librarian help them. Um, but one of the things you look at is something called a finding aid. So finding aid is just a document that mm -hmm. somebody has put together to kind of give you a sense what's in a collection. Um, and it will describe it briefly. And 
one of the things we're discovering is these finding aids, some of which are, you know, 40 years old, some of which are only five years old. Um, the descriptions and who gets identified in these descriptions mm. make all the difference. And that's how you uncover stories too. It's not just the stuff itself, but how somebody describes it. So it's a really exciting time as we uncover more and more stories. Well, and that's really, you know, what we're trying to pass on is these, uh, these these stories that help enrich the the past, our understanding of the past in particular. Um, in doing that, one of the things that I know you're particularly passionate about is National History Day, and it for those of us in the historical community, whether it's public history or as academics, uh, I'm sure we are all very concerned at the slippage that has occurred in the last couple of decades as we've pushed our students uh, towards the math and sciences, the, the whole focus on STEM learning, which is obviously very important to such a technological society. But at the same time, history plays an important role in understanding where we've been, who we are, and where we would like to be or, or who we would like to be as a nation. Uh, would you see that as a fair characterization or? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, again, the STEM stuff is obviously crucial, but even in within those fields in, in colleges and universities, there's now a swing to understand that STEM decisions are not made in a neutral vacuum, that they are in mm. fact value decisions. Um, it's also becoming clear to a lot of us that Americans don't necessarily know a lot about civics. That was one of the things that got <laughs> lost in the curriculum. And also um, a, a really renewed understanding that the skills of the historian, right? So what do historians do? Mm. We look at uh, primary documents. We look at evidence. We do research. We weigh evidence. We evaluate research. And then we put it together. We synthesize it to make an, we call it an argument, but to make mm. a point. And we call that critical thinking. Um, and it, sometimes it gets dressed up with media literacy, <laughs> but basically it's it's to be the ability to tell what's true and what's not and what's pertinent and what's not. And I think um, it's become increasingly clear to a, a, a lot of us in the country that we don't have those skills. And that mm. brings us to History Day, which is, um, Jonathan would say, perfect in every way, except <laughs> name, because it's, it's not a day. It's actually, um, it's well, if I may describe it, it's a contest. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a little mm -hmm. bit like uh, Glee meets Spelling Bee meets Science Fair. <laughs> um, it starts at the school level. It's national. It, it's done by state by state. starts at the school level. Um, and what we do is invite students, and they're either grades six through eight or high school, to choose something they're interested in finding out about. So right away, students um, are invested. And they can study a, a family history topic, national, international, local, whatever they decide. And then they're asked to research this. And they're given a, a series of venues to which they could express the research. So they can write a really conventional paper with a thesis statement. They can do an exhibition. They can do a website. They can do a documentary film. They can do a performance. So again, lots of different kinds mm -hmm. of kids um, can be involved in this. And they work on that for really the fall semester. And then the competition begins and they compete through the winter and it culminates. Uh, now it's all virtual, 
but it culminates eventually um, in a national contest where kids from all over the country are, come to perform and to compete for prizes. And mm -hmm. we talk about you know the many, many virtues of this and all the stuff that the kids are learning. But for me as a former college professor, the idea that they get to actually do this thing, research, exercise critical thinking skills, and then produce a historical argument back with evidence is, I'm gonna say with only slight exaggeration, is the most crucial skill to get students into college. And once mm -hmm. they get there, that ability is what keeps them there. And for a lot of students, it's only through History Day that they get a chance to exercise those skills. So we are the state sponsors. We run History Day in Massachusetts. And it's really one of the most important things we do. And I don't know if you could tell, but it's my passion. So. <laughs> well, and I want to talk about that for a minute because uh, so certainly the competition uh, across the nation uh, is National History Day is, is funded largely by the states themselves. Uh, and Massachusetts struggles to, to step up to meet uh, some of the large amounts of money that other states are putting into this event. You're being very diplomatic, Jonathan, and I, I will not. <laughs> so it's true. So the money comes from the state, you know, uh, but that's it doesn't come from the state for Massachusetts. So we were lucky a couple of years ago, maybe got $25,000 written into a bill, and we we're very grateful for that. But the truth is, though, we shepherded 6,000 students through National History Day last year. The truth is only about 1% of eligible students get a chance at History Day, mm -hmm. and it's all because of lack of funding. Uh, we look at a state like Minnesota, which has an incredibly robust, I mean, they're much, they have fewer people and they have 25,000 kids a year, 25 to 40,000 kids. And the reason those children get a chance to do that is because um, the state uh, of Minnesota gives them a million dollars a year. Now, I don't want to diss Minnesota, Jonathan. I'm <laughs> but the idea lovely that people, lovely people, lakes, there's a thousand lakes. But the idea that Minnesota gives their school children a million dollars a year to have this incredible, let me just say, life changing experience. And our state doesn't is terrible. And I want to give our state the opportunity to redeem themselves. At the moment, we are just running on private philanthropy. We get some lovely grants from the Massachusetts um, Cultural Council, Council for the Humanities, uh, but mostly it's our generous supporters who uh, raise the funds and they're used for really basic things. It's like getting um, students the equipment that you would need, for instance, to create a website. It pays for the buses. It pays for the lunches. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. really the basic stuff. And, you know, this year we were actually the first, I think, in the nation to have our state contest go virtual. Uh, mm. In fact, when the national contest, this was in early March, and the national contest, when they decided they had to go virtual for June, they came to us to find out how we did. And now it's all virtual. But one mm. of the sort of saving graces of that was that we found the students out in the western suburbs or out, I'm sorry, in the western parts of the state near Worcester in the central parts of the state who could have never afforded to compete, they can now do it virtually, you know, which is great. But right. we want to give our students the kind of chances that, well, frankly, Minnesota gets. So, well, and I, this brings up a sort of a larger issue about the role of uh, cultural and historical support or support for cultural and historical organizations in the Commonwealth. And, and, and I will say, 
in New England generally. And there are obviously, particularly in a year like 2020, uh, there are many demands on the public purse. Uh, many people are suffering and there is a, there, there is great need. Uh, but at the same time, uh, there are a number of uh, well-known and respected historical institutions that are really having to make hard choices uh, because of the downturn in the economy and the long-term prospects of uh, having to be closed or reduced hours until the vaccine has been completely rolled out. So what can we do to support? Yeah, and I think support is is the key. I, and I'm going to say, too, that I think in New England especially, there's a, and I'll even say in the nation, there's a great appreciation for our historical organizations and our cultural organizations. Mm. And I think that we all feel it this year, too, that we haven't been able to go to museums, that we, you know, we have exhibitions as we have one, um, our, our own, about um, voting. Um, that we miss going there. So there is an appreciation. And there was a famous survey a few years ago, and you probably know better than I do the exact, but it was really asking the American public what institutions they trusted the most. Um, mm. And I don't need to tell you the government kind of came down there near the bottom, newspapers were somewhere in the middle. And it turns out that people trusted museums. They trusted mm. historical organizations and museums. I think probably because we have the authentic stuff and we're, we rely on facts. And, and so I think the appreciation that people have for what we do is high. Maybe in New England, we take it for granted a little bit. So going back to this idea of funding for History Day, I think a lot of Bostonians and Massachusetts citizens are shocked because we're so proud of our history. It's so much <laughs> a part of what we are that we're shocked that we don't actually sort of appreciate mm -hmm. it more. And so really um, what we can do is, is give our time, our talent and our funds. Um, and I know you're right, Jonathan, it's really hard when we're called upon to do some really basic and important things like feed people. Um, but, mm. you know, what we do is also really very important and it, it absolutely needs our support. Um, another, like, here's a way to think about this and, and think about, I think a good a good organization is always asking themselves, how are we relevant to our community? And what I love about my sister and fellow historical organizations in this area is they're always thinking about that. Mm -hmm. And one of the great problems that we have, as we know, is is the growing inequity in our in our in our culture. And we're talking mm -hmm. about wealth gaps between races, but we're talking about just general uh, economic inequality. And one of the drivers. Um, of closing that gap is the ability for students to get into college and mm -hmm. then stay in college because a college degree will take um, not only a student, but their family along a middle-class track. And I like to think of us as kind of a ninja at the historical <laughs> society. We can't do everything to make that happen, but there's one thing we can do. And that is actually teach students that, that, that skill that I talked about, that critical thinking, uh, skill about evidence and being able to construct an argument and it is a skill and once you can do it you can do it with anything and you can do it across the college curriculum and if we can do that that's our way of saying yes we can help with this much larger societal problem um, mm -hmm. and that kind of that kind of commitment that kind of thinking I think deserves support from the public and honestly 
when I tell people about it, they're moved to do so because it is obviously such uh, a crucial mission. Absolutely. We would be remiss uh, if we didn't talk about your excellent scholastic work, uh, particularly on uh, the life and impact of Dolly Madison, wife of President James Madison, who led uh, a fascinating uh, life and really, I think, defined the role of what a first lady can do because she she moved beyond what we might naturally consider the role of the first lady as the hostess of the White House to being somebody who really helped bring people together and and uh, and obviously her role in saving treasures uh, with her staff and her slaves. Uh, at the White House, I think, uh, you know, most people are familiar with, but really her role in American history is much deeper. Yeah, and, and in fact, I like to think of her as an early historian, um, not only saving the treasures, like a good preservationist, <laughs> uh, but she played a big role in transcribing the notes from the Constitutional Convention mm. and then getting them published, which was quite a chore. So we, we actually owe a lot to her. You know, I met Dolly in a in a larger circle, a larger party, if you, if you would. Um, <laughs> and actually, I have to give credit to uh, Louisa Catherine Adams, the wife and political partner mm -hmm. of Lindsay Adams. I had done work on her as an undergraduate um, about her work in Russia, where mm -hmm. uh, John Lindsay Adams was apparently a successful diplomat in Russia. So the, the Russian mission was very successful. And I, I was very puzzled by that because he was not diplomatic. John Quincy Adams. <laughs> a lot of things, Jonathan. Very, very smart. But he was notoriously antisocial and grumpy. He described himself that way. And I wondered about that, especially when I discovered that in Russia, diplomacy wasn't an official activity that you did in a boardroom, you know, with a, a gavel. It was something you did at social events. So the mystery deepened, let me just say. And of course, I discovered that it was Louisa Catherine who um, forged the diplomatic channels through her uh, her, 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 her work at social events and her own diplomatic personality. And after I did that work and then I became a real historian and, and went on to get my PhD at Yale and become a professor, I began wondering if that could possibly be true in America. And I thought maybe not because America seemed different and they did have official channels. Um, but it turned out that working with Dolly Madison, Louisa Catherine Adams and other women, um, I just, I sort of fulfilled the, that the promise that you were talking about a little bit earlier, like if you look at certain groups, the stories of them, we look at what women do, we look at what people of color do, we look at what the poor mm -hmm. uh, experience, we look at their words when we have them, their work, their lives, because they tell us something different than the conventional narrative. They mm -hmm. don't contribute as much as constitute a different narrative. And when I looked at what the women of Washington, including Dolly, were doing, I realized that um, they were building a kind of rudimentary political machine that was going to uh, perform a variety of political ta tasks that the founders found repugnant, but would soon become business as usual, including patronage, mm. um, including uh, developing uh, unofficial places where, where people could meet each other, where people could process information. And as, um, the American political system grew, those things became official. They became political mm -hmm. parties. We got this uh, civil service system to account for patronage. Uh, and really they changed the narrative in many ways about 
uh, what the founders were doing. And what I'd like to say is that the constitution was a blueprint, but it wasn't exactly an owner's manual. And so <laughs> the women of this founding generation had to figure out how to put these ideals in action and where they had to compromise in doing so to actually ensure the stability of the Republic. Um, and then, you know, as I was working on this, I discovered to my shock that this woman, Dolly Madison, who seemed, by the way, the perfect exemplar of this model, didn't have a scholarly biography. So that was my, mm -hmm. after I wrote my first book, which was called Parlor Politics, which featured a, a circle of these women. Um, I then decided that Dolly needed a scholarly biography. So that was my book, A Perfect Union. Um, so a lot written about Dolly because she was fascinating and wonderful, but nothing really scholarly. Um, and the other resource, anybody interested in Dolly, I would say there's the Dolly, Mad Dolly Madison Digital Edition run by Holly Schulman at the University of Virginia. Uh, and she was also an early scholar of taking Dolly seriously and really was inspirational to me. But she's the one who's, again, done the work that you're talking about, Jonathan, which is assemble the material and making them accessible to anyone. So that's at uh, Rotunda Press at U University of Virginia, the Dolly Madison Digital Edition. Terrific. And let me just ask you a question out of the blue, which is uh, what other uh, sort of biographical black holes do you feel are out there that need to be explored in a deeper way? Oh, my gosh. There's there's. You know, it's really simple. It's just moved beyond the conventional narrative. Um, mm. and, you know, we used to say, um, well, we can't write about X because there's nothing out there. But the truth is, there is if you dig a little bit. And and we're back to, in a way to the library description. So when I went to libraries, including Mass of the Massachusetts Historical Society, where I was a fellow <laughs> in 1996, um, I would go to librarians and I'd say, I'm interested in women in Washington. Uh, and especially their social political work. So I'm looking for women in Washington City or being written to by their husbands back home. And really the first thing that librarians would say with a very worried look is they'd say, we don't have anything like that. Then they, by the way, John, they always add, except for Dolly Madison. Uh, but <laughs> is that because I worked with talented, imaginative librarians, what we soon discovered is all that stuff was there in the archives, but it was um, it was hidden under husband's names or mm -hmm. it, was, it was grouped under personal. And so mm -hmm. what I found was uh, these women who had been in Washington City writing to the folks back home or had been wives, sisters, daughters getting mail from Washington. And it was really a, a matter of uncovering. So. I would say that any person of color, anybody of the lower classes, uh, Native American, any woman, it's all there. Um, and you might have to do a little digging, but you will be richly rewarded. Well, and on that note, Catherine, I have to say that our time is up. Thank you so much okay, for you. joining us today. And uh, we look forward to all the other great news coming out of the Massachusetts Historical Society. Thank you. And go Rev 250. Thanks so much. Have a wonderful day, everybody. And we'll see you next week. Bye.